Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. We've upgraded. CGS, we're living the high life. It was a small bottle before. But uh, uh, before we start, uh, let's start with a prayer. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. It's good to see you all and welcome to our CGS service. We have been going through a sermon series called Hum. And in Hum, this is something that we pray for. And it's, it's an acronym that stands for, or acrostic that stands for, holiness, unity, and maturity. And we are in our fourth week of Lent. And this is the second part of unity. Pastor Paul did uh, uni- or maintaining the unity of the Spirit last week. And today we're going to talk about unity in diversity. And just a quick review. Last week we found out that we are a people that long for community, that long for unity. Unity with God and unity with one another. And through Jesus Christ, God gives us this unity. And now we're called to steward or maintain this unity. That was last week's passage, and this week's passage starts with a but. But, Jesus gives to each one of us grace. But is a conjunction to signify the coming clarifying, contrasting statement. What is the statement before? There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. It's talking about this oneness, and unity is shown as oneness. But contrary to what one would normally think, oneness is not sameness. Oneness is not sameness. And you may have heard a similar phrase using these terms, unity is not uniformity. It's an okay statement. I like it. But to be honest, there is some uniformity in in a healthy body. But obviously, you know, if you continue to think this to, I I suppose, an extreme end, uh, we're not going to start like shouting, unity is not uniformity. And then when people are singing, 
I don't know, we don't sing. Or when it's time to listen to the word, you read the Bible or you start singing. I don't know. So that's not what we're talking about. And if someone does do that, then that person obviously has other issues. But true oneness in Christ, according to the Bible, will manifest itself in a variety of gifts. True oneness does not manifest itself with everyone looking and dressing exactly the same. You know, this is where people get confused. Maybe perhaps you think, ah, you know, Christian churches, they're all like looking the same. Um, I would would defer to you to any part, part in history, any part outside the church where actually sameness is received. I know a lot of people are thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Unity is not uniformity, but in these churches, uniformity is stressed and things like that. But I think that's just the world period. And I'll give you an example. Uh, in the 1940s and 50s, if you lived in America during that time, there were ads that targeted women. And these ads would say things like, women, do you want to gain five, ten pounds? Then use our product. You may be a little confused, but here's the full ad. Uh, this is from the 1940s and 50s. And Honestly, you could Google, there's a ton of them, but men wouldn't look at me when I was skinny, but I gained 10 pounds the new and easy way. I have all the dates that I want. That's that's seriously an ad from the 1940s and 50s. You see, now it has changed, and when I was a youth pastor in the late 2000s, early 2010s, the whole thing then, back then, where young girls were growing up in my youth group was people wanted to be skinny. What is the, we did a survey on what is the best adjective someone would, could call you. Sexy was up there, but it was number two. Number one was skinny. And so you see how everybody is conforming to an idea at the time. People have this idea of beauty, and, the, and it's, it's very, very narrow. And this is not just in the church. This is in the world. However, the same creative God who created the heavens and the earth with all its splendor and beauty, gives birth to the church. And then how could you ever imagine the church then being one colorless blob of dullness? And this is why the verse starts with, but, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, instead of the word uh, gifts, the actual word here is grace. Grace was given to each one of us. In Grace in the Greek is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, which is where we got the word for spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts is charismata. And so it's from charis, charis and charismata. And you actually see the word charismata in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. And this is what John Stott writes. He writes, The unity of the church is due to charis, God's grace having reconciled us to himself, but the diversity of the church is due to charismata, God's gifts distributed to the church members. So the root of all of this, the diversity that we want to see, is grace. Christ gives us grace, and there is a beautiful Diversity that is born. And I was thinking, what kind of example could we give that God shows us 
in the manifest world. And can we get that first slide up there? And so this is the full color spectrum. You will see here all the colors that you could, I, I suppose, see uh, all, or all the colors that are there. What is happening here is there's a white light. And through white light, if it hits a prism, then all the colors come refracted. And we see a whole assortment of color. So the example that I was thinking about is Jesus Christ is the white light. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is this uh, prism. And through that, we see a whole assortment of color. So if you look at this, there are so many colors. You could even there say there are an infinite amount of colors you see from Roy G. Biv, maybe the big seven. But from there, you can see all these other colors like cyan or, you know, green or something. I don't know. Roy G. Biv, green is in there. My bad. But you can see all these colors. Now, we'll keep this up here for a minute. I want you to look at that and think about this. And you see the whole spectrum of color this is the diversity of the church. Think about it like that. And I find this kind of interesting that the charismatics took the term. And if you may have heard the word charismatics, right? Uh, or the charismatic movement or the charismatic church. They took the term and applied it to themselves. And I have to say, charismata is much bigger than they are thinking. The gifts are not simply red, orange, yellow. It's not. So the gifts, the entirety of the spiritual gifts is not healing, prophesying, and tongues. Why is it that these gifts are being so highlighted and even obsessed over these days? Could it be? Could it be? Because they are more on the fantastical and spectacular side. There are at least five lists given in the New Testament, and they include at least 20 specific gifts, and no list in the five lists are the same. And there's no doubt there are many more gifts, but included in this list is a gift or charismata called doing acts of mercy. Doing acts of mercy. So when someone says, I want to pray for spiritual gifts, can you pray that I can receive the Holy Spirit and I want spiritual gifts? And I'm sure if you grew up in the church, you've heard that. And then, yes, God bestows upon you the spiritual gift of doing mercy. Where's the fanfare then? Hospitality. It's like, yeah, hospitality. Now when people come to my house, they feel nice. In fact, most of these spiritual gifts would be considered now, in today's standards, as prosaic or even mundane. Ah, I want to speak in tongue. And I want to question you, I wonder why so badly you want to do these. Because, because my life is so mundane and it's so boring. It needs excitement. I want to encourage you here. Uh, I was in Japan, and I was with a bunch of leaders. My team was eating at another table, and I got to sit uh, at a table with all these leaders from around the world. And there was a leader who specialized and focused on healing. There was another leader who went to this huge mega church uh, chain around the world, and he was in charge of all the videography. And you'll see his work in, this, in their website. And then all these 
church leaders from around the world. We were gathered in the table, and then the, we had decided to have a conversation. Hey, um, what is it that you really, really are excited about in God's work? And then some people will say, you know, God is going to bring healing. Some people say, I'm, you know, God is using media to, to go across the world. And then they came to me. <laughs> and I was just there because I was buying the lunch. So I was just compulsory, the invitation. But they're like, Eugene, what do you want? And I said, what are you excited about? And I said, I'm excited about the mundane. And then they looked at me and they said, so this lunch is good, right? This Japanese curry is excellent. But I am excited about the mundane. The mundane, which you may think is boring and commonplace and just repetitive, habitual. Mundane is actually from the French word mundane. And it's from the Latin word mundus, which comes from the Greek word cosmos. This is where we get cosmopolitan. Cosmopolitan means a diversity in the city. Spectacular, on the other hand is a spectacle. It's for an instant. Mundane is cosmopolitan and it's cosmos. This is why I love the mundane. Mundane is all-encompassing. It's the universe as we know it. It's vast, it's diverse, and it's beautiful. This is why I honestly believe if you're only going from spectacle to spectacle, from some huge thing to another huge event, you will never ever build the necessary foundation to really make any kind of impact. You need the mundane in your life, and I'm telling you, love it. Love the mundane. This is true for every single part of our being, your physical body. If you think you can just do one, one, one day, you could be young, a lot of you are young, and then you can have a great, great basketball game, you know, 50 points, never been done before in the CGS League, amazing, but that's all you did, you never practiced, you think you could always do this, and you will never, ever make a foundational impact. That is a guarantee that Pastor Eugene is giving you for the basketball court. You will be shut down the next game. I will call Kevin, and then he will shut you down personally. Not me, myself, right? Um, it is about the mundane. It's about enjoying the mundane, loving it, knowing that what God is doing is something incredible, giving us a full spectrum of what the world should be. It's cosmos. And that's why I love it. We could take that off now. So Paul isn't just contrasting what we see from unity. He is qualifying what we should see from true unity. If you truly have unity, what should you see? And that's why Paul says, but, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Imagine how creative our God is. And when he birthed the church, how creative the church should be. This is why I love our church. We will never be just one, or we will never be all of that. We won't. No one church will be all of that. But we are part of this incredible thing God is doing. And Jesus Christ is doing. Going on to the next verse, it says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. 
This is from Psalm 68. Uh, specifically, it looks very similar to Psalm 68, verse 18. So we're going to put that up there real quick. And it says in Psalm 68, verse 18, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, excuse me, even among the rebellious, but that the Lord God may dwell there. This looks really similar. And then people know this is in reference to Psalm 68, uh, but it's not the same words. I put it up there just to, just to show you. I'm not trying to pull wool over your eyes. My dream and hope for this church is that we are like the Bereans. Every time we see something, we study it. We study it. We verify it. There's proof text. There's evidence. So I want us to see that, and I want, us to, I want to teach you that. If you actually look at what Ephesians says, what Paul says in Ephesians, he goes, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Here we see receiving gifts among men. So there's a different word here. So what's going on? Does Paul not know the Bible? We know that's not the case. Every commentator that looked at this and every scholar looked at this knew that this must not have been just some mistake Paul doesn't do that. He knows the Bible better than anyone could have ever known. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He memorized all, the, all of the scripture. And so why did he do that? This is really interesting. The fact that he did that shows us there's a point. He points this out to push us back to Psalm 68. And if you look at Psalm even if you look at the verses above and below, I want you to look at the whole chapter, but even if you look at the verses above and below, this is a psalm about conquering. It's about victory. If you look at verse 7, 10, 11, these are verses that would be reminiscent of God saving Israel out of Egypt. And so this is the conquering king. And when the conquering king comes, there is an homage that you pay. But because the conquering comes, he gives spoils and he divides the spoils among those that are in his kingdom. And we could take that off now. This is uh, rem really reminiscent, people think, Psalm 68 with Pentecost. And this is why we see this psalm as amazingly similar to what uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 33 said, where Peter on the day of Pentecost said, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having re received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, meaning Jesus, has poured out this which you see and hear. Christ pours out the gifts to his church. And this is what we receive. I love it because the giving and the receiving, they're all correlated. So as Christ gives us these amazing gifts, we give him the glory and homage. And so that's, uh, that's verse 8. We're going to go, there's a parenthetical statement from verses 9 and 10. It says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who des descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. This is not, we're not talking about pantheistic worldview. That's not what Paul is talking about. In fact, I would even say, Paul isn't talking about spatial terms. He is talking about spiritual terms. His descent, when we talk about his descent, was his humiliation. And his ascent was his exaltation. Death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Christ came down to conquer, but the way he conquered is not like any other conqueror that we have seen in this world, in all of history. How do people conquer in history? Every single political group, faction, every single army, every single group that we have seen in history, how do they conquer? They conquer by force. Who wins? The one with the bigger stick. The one with the bigger stick wins, and they conquer lands and nations, and there's empires because of it. Alexander the Great had an empire. He had a huge, he had a huge weapon. The Roman Empire. And then Jesus comes down, and he dies. And we recognize that is the true conqueror. Today, we still don't get it today. Today, we still don't get it because we still think it's about power. Give me power. Give me power. Give me power. Give this group power. Give this group power. We don't feel good because this group doesn't have power. This, that group doesn't have power. But every time we see a group come into power, we see that as they come into power, there is corruption and then there is chaos. There is a disintegration of order. The stronger you are, perhaps, perhaps, with a strong and mighty political hand, Pastor Eugene can hold on to CGS and make it grow. But I want to tell you this. It will not last. It will not last. Every time someone with strength came and they would hold this nation or any kind of group with strength, it would turn to corruption, and then they will fall. Even look at Israel's history is rampant with that. Every time they got into power, they would forget God, and they would get stronger, but they would forget God, and then there would be a disintegration, chaos, exile, punishment, and then God would lift them up again, again and again. And then we see here, even today, people don't get it. People think it's about, I need power, I need power. But Jesus Christ comes to this earth and he descends, he was humiliated, he died on a cross, and then his perfect life, his perfect death led to his resurrection. God raised him up from the dead, and he was exalted. Guys, I want you to understand this is true victory. This is victory that nothing on this wor- in this world can take away. And this is the victory that is given to those who believe and have faith in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ dispenses the spoils of that victory. There is exaltation, there is rule, there is authority, and Christ possesses all of these things because he is the conqueror of death and of this world, and he gives gifts to whom he pleases and he dispenses them. The imagery of the psalm is that of a victorious ruler in war dividing the spoils. So gift giving or spoil dividing is shown to be given from who in this passage? Who gives the gifts? It's Jesus Christ, right? It's Jesus Christ. I'm going to try to make another point here. This is kind of a side point because we've, we've been inundated with all this information from other places, but is it really biblical? Is, I want us to challenge these thoughts when we read it. Who gives the spiritual gifts here in Ephesians? 
Jesus Christ. If you look at Romans 12, who gives the spiritual gifts? It's God the Father. And if you look at Corinthians, who gives the spiritual gifts? It's the Holy Spirit. It is a mistake to think that gifts only come from the Holy Spirit. According to the Bible, gift giving is a triune act involving all the persons of the Godhead. Yes, it's through the Holy Spirit, but it is a triune act. God himself is involved with the gift giving. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, building up the body of Christ. How does God do this? How does God dispense his gifts? He gave the church the apostles. The apostles we know to mean here capital A apostles. Capital A meaning the 12 that he chose. Can there be more apostles now? The answer is no. Apostles, of course, means sent. So in a sense, we're all lowercase apostles. We're all being sent. However, this is not what the Bible means. We know this because there's an article, a definitive article before the apostles, which could also be translated to some. He gave to some apostles, right? Some prophets. So it's not everybody gets this gift. There are, there are specific things or people that he has set apart for his church. Apostles means sent, and in a sense, we're all apostles, but it does not mean here. And you may have heard of apostolic succession, but true apostolic succession is preserved in the writings of the New Testament. I get this is kind of heavy. <laughs> I, I'm sorry if this is heavy for you, but we have been given so much wrong information. And if I'm just doing exegesis, that means if I'm just reading the Bible here, and I'm looking at it in context, I'm looking at it word for word, it cannot mean what a lot of us thought it meant. You cannot be an apostle right now. There is no apostle. The apostles were there because Jesus handpicked them. They saw the resurrected Jesus Christ and he commissions them. And what they wrote was in the canonical writings. It became Bible. That means if I start calling myself apostle, call me apostle Eugene from now on. Forget Pastor Eugene. Call me apostle Eugene from now on. That means what I say can overwrite what's in the Bible or add it to the Bible. That's ridiculous. There is no more. Apostles. There is an authority that was not compared to anybody after Paul, Peter, John, James, all those people. Yet some would have the audacity to call themselves an apostle. This is not true, my friends. An apostle was chosen by Jesus Christ, saw the physical and historical risen Jesus. They had the authority to write scripture. And what we have now in the 66 books is the complete canon. What that means is the Bible is closed. There's no need or room to write anything extra. There's no need for an extra revelation because the complete revelation has been given to us in the word. Many have tried. Many have tried. Joseph Smith tried. Jehovah's Witnesses tried. They are what we call cults. They either tried to add or subtract from the Bible. And what we find is a belief and faith. If you continue down the rabbit hole, what we find is a belief and faith that may look similar at first. That may look similar at first, but as you look closer, it's a completely different religion. Completely different. You gotta look close. You gotta look close. I was joking the other day when um, we're talking about the Japan trip, 
and uh, one of the other church members, uh, other group church, there was another church, and they asked, oh, Pastor Gene, how old are you? And my team said, don't answer. Let them guess. And I don't know why, but I was just going to answer. I am a 40-year-old man. So they all wanted the other church to guess. So, okay, okay, let's be, let's be, uh, I'm going to be conservative. You, you obviously are much older than you look, so I'm going to say 25. And at this, my whole team just erupted in outrage. Like, how dare you say this man is 25? They're so upset. But I would say maybe from far away, you know, far, but if you look closer, there's wrinkles and there's white hair <laughs> and there's all these things in me that you will say, that man is not 25. I joke, but if you look closely, when you diverge from the truth and the Bible, what can seemingly look okay, almost innocuous, not that big of a deal, is a completely different religion. There are no apostles that today. There's just not. What about prophets then? What about prophets? He goes, so God gave the church apostles to build the church, and we praise God for that. We love them for that. What about prophets? So another distinction is to be made. A prophet was someone who stood in the council of God. They either saw or heard his word, and they were chosen to be a mouthpiece of that direct revelation. A formula that you would see, especially in the Old Testament, would be, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Prophets would use that because it wasn't their words. It was God's words. And if a prophet said, thus says the Lord, it became canonical. That means it became Bible. The Bible is a collection of God's word, right? And so it became canonical. Thus says the Lord. It was included in the Bible. In that sense, also, there are no prophets today. Do people prophesy? The answer is yes, yes. Just like we're all apostolic in, in that sense. We're all sent. Do people prophesy? Yes. But just as like we are all sent, not apostles, not capital A apostles, there are no capital P prophets that can add to the Bible today. There will be people, places, and organizations that will say otherwise. But the Bible does not affirm that. Jesus validated and affirmed scripture while he was here on this earth. And he gave authority to a handful of men to write the New Testament. But if you get these two mixed up, you are crossing a very fine line between error and apostasy. If you get these two mixed up, you are crossing a very fine line that will get you between error and apostasy. One will get you rebuked. But the other will get you damned. I would be very careful if we ever start using that kind of language that would teeter on this line. God said this to me. Oh, did he? Is it revelatory? Is it divine? No, no, no. He told me to eat that cheese sandwich. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what else to say on that. Even Augustine, Calvin, Luther, these giants of the faith didn't dare call themselves apostles or prophets. How are we better than them? Because you can heal a stomachache? Wow. 
but they have been given to us. The apostles and the prophets have been given to us to build the church. Evangelists are next. Evangelists are also mixed in with missionaries. There are two other references we see in the Bible. In Acts 21, there's Philip the Evangelist. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul calls Timothy an evangelist. So these are people that we, we, I think, in this day and age call Billy Graham an evangelist. These are people with special giftings to preach the gospel. When they preach the gospel, we see the Holy Spirit do a massive work. And people come to faith. And then, uh, finally, we have shepherds and teachers. The shepherds and teachers. The reason why we put these two together is because the article that separated the, or some, or whatever translation you're reading, the, is in every single one except teachers. So we believe the shepherds and teachers are probably meant to be put together. Otherwise, there would have been an article before teachers. They are put together because um, in every... uh, you know, some people think it's different, though. Some people think it's the same. But shepherds are also known as pastors. Pastor, you know, is, means, literally means shepherd. So this is what we need to understand. Shepherds and teachers, pastors must protect and feed the sheep under their care, and teachers must teach them. Why? But the, the main thing is, now I've defined the terms, why were they given to us? Why were they given to the church? Why did Jesus give these workers to the church? And it tells you in the next and last verse, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. To be equipped and to work in diversity of how you <clears throat> were created as a new creation in Jesus Christ. That, this is why in a healthy church, beauty is evident. This is why we strive to be a healthy church. Which leads us to our next week's continuing passage. A healthy church is a mature and maturing church. But God has given each and every single one of his children. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are his child. And he has given each of you, and many times, I can attest, it's more than just one gift. Sometimes it's one, but that's okay. But Christ has given you grace according to the measure of his gifts. Each and every single one of you have and has received Grace. Why? It's in the chapter before, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, the manifold, the manifold, the huge diversity of God may be shown to the world. It's through Christ we are the salt and light of the world. We bring out flavors and colors the world would have never seen otherwise. The church unified in truth and in love is one of the most powerful displays of God's glory in all of his creation. And when we go through history, I continue to remind us, when was the first orphanage set? Wasn't it a bunch of... Christians that got together, it's like, stop throwing babies on the street. We're going to pick them up. Hospitals, even the first schools here, like Harvard. It was by Presbyterian ministers, by the way. And then we give it. We give. We give. 
This is why we strive to maintain the unity, bear with one another, and work diligently in studying God's word and living it out in obedience. This is why we strive to maintain the unity. And I hope that you see that this passage is rich even beyond what was spoken today. It's heavy. It's heavy passage. But I hope that we were able to see the richness of what God has in store for his church. The beauty of the diversity that he is bestowing upon his new creation. That's us. That's us. Praise God for that. This is why every time I look at CGS, it's exciting. Exciting to see what God is doing. It's exciting to see yeah, the babies being born. Yeah, that's, that's pretty exciting too. We had uh, two babies born this, this past week. But uh, yeah, it's amazing, right? It's amazing. And, but even so, like new life being brought together, lives being given up for Christ, and Christ changing this life to make that person a part of the beautiful spectrum God has in store. As we put our faith in Christ, know that Christ is the one that makes us beautiful, gives us grace according to his gifts, and we praise him for that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this incredible word that we've been given the word and the assurance that you are with us and that you give us these good gifts because you are our king. And we pray just as we have read that we will be excited for what you have in store for your church, that we will continue to grow and mature, that we would maintain this unity, unity as we look upon and strive to be like you, holy. Let's take this time to pray. And in our hearts, perhaps you have not thought about this before, but God has given you a gift. What gift is it? And how is the Holy Spirit leading you to serve his church with the gifts that you've given, you've been given? Let's pray and lift it up to the Lord. Give, pay homage to him. He is our king. And let's give him all the glory. Let's pray.